As far as I know, the longest word in the dictionary is floxy norcini nihili pilification. It's 31 letters long, and if you want to talk about what it means, we can do that after the service. But there's a word that is filled with more meaning than that and is harder to pronounce, and that is this word, suffering. No subject vexes us more than suffering does. No question causes greater questions than the question of suffering. It's the small word, but in it is compacted a universe of meaning. It may be something fairly trivial like an anxiety that grips your heart, which is part of suffering. It may be something intense like dying a gruesome death. But all along the scale, every one of us at some point or another in one intensity or another, wrestles, do we not, with the question of our suffering. It raises questions of immense intensity. The entire universe presses down on you when you are suffering, and you start asking, where is God? Is he punishing me? You may even ask, is there a God? One of the great philosophers said, if there is a God, in the light of the suffering of the world, he must be the devil. When Paul uses this word in our passage this morning, he is not a professor of theology giving us an academic rundown on the subject in comfortable slippers in front of a cheery fire. Let me remind you of his story as it's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I have been, he says, in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods the Roman form of uh, punishment. Men often died under that. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen. In danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And yet he says, I am glad for my suffering Or, as another translation puts it, I rejoice in my suffering. And he links the word in this completely surprising and strange way. Because my first reaction is to recoil with deep, deep passion from my suffering. But he rejoices in it. 
It is obscene to the natural mind to link these two words, rejoicing and suffering. They are, in fact, in the natural mind, in direct antithesis. And like oil and water, not only cannot be mixed, but in certain minds should not be mixed. So we've got to ask this question, is Paul just being conventional? Responding to the opener, how you all, with an automatic but meaningless and even mindless rejoinder, I'm good? Is he just a starry-eyed mystic? And we should ask, is he actually sincere? Can you actually do this? And after the, the catalog of suffering that we read, he is now in a Roman prison and knows he is likely to be sentenced to death. And the Romans knew how to do death, how to make it a spectator sport. They were experts in amusing the crowd by dragging the death out to make it as slow and lingering as possible. That's how the cross was invented. Now, none of these answers that I've given you can possibly be correct, for he follows it up and he says, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. Oh, I get it. Let's have the benediction and go home. No, we say, what on earth is he talking about? Well, it cannot possibly mean this. That in some senses or another, Jesus filled the cup that God requires of suffering to a certain level. And then the Apostle Paul added his bit of suffering and other saints add theirs and my little bit goes in there. And finally the cup is full enough so that God says, now I'm satisfied, now we can all go home. It cannot possibly mean that because our instinctive sense of the gospel tells us that that's not the gospel. That Jesus paid it all. That he said, it is finished. And when he said that, he actually demonstrated that it was finished. And it introduces uncertainty where God has left none because we start asking, how much must I add and when will it be full enough and on and on of all that sort of nonsense. Maybe we can understand it by comparing uh, Colossians chapter 1 verse 19 with uh, 1 verse 24. And uh, here we have in chapter 1 verse 19, God was pleased to have all his Fullness, and the Greek word is pleroma, dwell in him. And in chapter 1 verse 24, the apostle says, And I fill up antana pleroma. You see the word is different. There's the same root there, pleroma, as up there. But it's the word anti plus ana plus pleroma. And just to say ana is a particle meaning completely. I fill up completely and in an anti-sense what is lacking of the suffering of Christ. And so we can see that the word anti really says it's a suffering over against the suffering of Jesus. 
It identifies the two things and says, yes, they are similar, but it also distinguishes between them. So, for example, in Christian circles, we use the word antichrist. And that word is used of someone who claims to be Christ, but actually is distinguished as different from Christ. And uh, so we had the translation in Colossians 1.24 uh, from the New Living Translation. I am glad or I rejoice when I suffer for you in my body, for I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. God has given me the responsibility of serving his church by proclaiming his entire message to you. And so it's got something to do with the entirety of God's message and it's part of the proclamation that God has given in the gospel. Now here's a way of looking at it. First of all, the suffering of Jesus is different to any other suffering that ever took place. It is the ultimate suffering in the first place. And it is, in the second instance, unique suffering. It is unique and ultimate because God actually forsook Jesus in his suffering. You recall there was a moment when everything went dark and Jesus cried out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is as though God took a magnifying glass and concentrated all the sins of all beings through all ages on Jesus and in the process abandoned him. That's what hell would be, the total abandonment of every token of God's goodness and presence. Hence his death is ultimate. It is also unique because it is a ransom and it is completed, it is finished. So nothing needs to be added nor can anything be added during the Hundred Years' War, the English army laid siege to the city of Calais. And when the deprivations in the city, after about a year, reached levels of desperation and people were dying in increasing numbers and practicing cannibalism, the city sued for peace. King Edward III demanded that six leading citizens volunteer to be executed as representatives of the entire city. One time you don't want to be a, a leader in a community. Well, the gates creaked open and the six came out and each one had a rope around his neck and he said, hang us and spare the city. Now in a much deeper sense and filled with a spiritual significance that our hearts resonate with, Jesus died as our representative and ransomed us in his death on the cross. So you can look at it in this sense then. There is the cross unique and ultimate 
But what the Apostle Paul does is place our suffering under the shadow of the cross so that it is overshadowed by the suffering of Jesus. Now this is an essential point to grasp because when you commence on any pathway of suffering, the first thing the devil says to you is, you see, I told you, God does not love you. The first question that comes to your mind is something along the lines, I wonder if God is punishing me. Where is God in the suffering? And the devil loves that and will insinuate further thoughts into your mind and the devil is the one who will diminish you and say God has turned his back on you and God has moved away from you and he has isolated you to suffer because he doesn't like you. The Apostle Paul negates all of that when he says I fill up in my own suffering Under the cross, I take on the significance of the suffering of Jesus. I don't know if you noticed it in the passage of Scripture, that he suffers for the body, that he does it in order to uh, proclaim the fullness of the mystery of the gospel. He negates all the lies of the devil and all the sensations that suffering bring to you and encourages you not to think emotionally or psychologically about your suffering, but to think theologically and place it in gospel context, in the scriptural sense, under the shadow of the cross. And it therefore underscores the opposite. God is calling you to a special place when He calls you to suffer, a different place, a place of special bonding and a fellowship. One year I led a team of people to Dumaguete City in the Philippines and we built a a clinic for the poor in that city. Uh, children who lived on the garbage dumps uh, had no medical facility, so we went to build them a clinic. The temperature day and night was over 90 degrees. You know, you just think back the last week, you get it. The humidity was mostly in the 80s, nonstop for the entire two weeks we were there. We were to mix concrete for the floor of the clinic as our first task, only to discover that they knew nothing about a garden hose, and there were none to be bought anywhere in the city, and the nearest water point was 200 feet away. They didn't have wheelbarrows either, and there were none to be had in the city, so we carted the gravel in buckets by hand, carted the sand in buckets by hand, loaded the cement on our shoulders to put in the the cement mix. We carried the water by bucket from 200 feet away, mixed it by hand, then carried buckets of concrete to be laid for the floor. Now, that was great fun, wasn't it? Now, I'll tell you this. When any of that team get together or whenever we talk to each other on the phone or face-to-face, there's a certain bond between us that nobody else can understand. 
And there's a fellowship. There is what we know as the band of brothers syndrome that has knit us together in such a way that we have a unique relationship. God is drawing you into a unique relationship through your suffering. For you see, God suffers. God suffered when his only begotten son died on the cross. Admiral McCain was the commander-in-chief of the Pacific forces during the Second World War. And Lyndon B. Johnson called him into his office and ordered the bombing of Hanoi City. The only trouble is that the admiral's own son, John McCain, was in a prison in Hanoi City. And he had to give the order to bomb, possibly, his very own son. His wife says, until the day that he gave up the Being the commander-in-chief, every night he would retire for two hours. And she once peeped in on him to see what he was doing before he came out of his room again. And he was on his knees with an open Bible, shedding tears. Now, in a deeper sense, and in a much more spiritually significant way, God was involved in the suffering Of Jesus on the cross. There's one word I left out earlier on. It's the word now. Now, says the apostle, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. If we are to rejoice in our suffering, it is this word which is the fulcrum on which everything depends. Uh, Because as your suffering distinguishes you, in contrast to the devil's lie that it diminishes you, uh, this word now has to be understood fully. Well, uh, pastor, are you just being academic here? Well, no, the apostle anticipated that reaction, so he sounds the foghorn of practicality. And he does it by using this word, now. Uh, for us, the word now is like a, uh, a filler word. Listen to commentators and listen to yourself when you're speaking and even listen to preachers. They often say, now... And what they're really doing is say, I'm, I'm thinking about what I'm going to say next, like, um, um, um. Now sounds better than um. I think you'll agree with that. Now, as used by the apostle, is an adverb of time. It's an adverb of time that links the past and instructs the future. In fact, it captures the past And it costs the future in terms of the past. And it does it now in the present. And what is the past that the apostle captures? Well, last week we looked at it. The past that he's capturing is not just any past. He's referring very much to the scripture. And the scripture said, 
that there has been this great rescue. You remember the, the active, divine, omnipotently filled words that we read about rescue and delivering us and conveying us and ransoming us and redeeming us. And we saw the great rescuer who did it. Christ is the invisible image and the f- man who is full of God's presence the unique one in the universe who in fact holds the universe together, this great rescuer effected that great rescue, and in the now, that is what we must capture. When our minds want to go outside of that, we have to drag them back by God's grace and say, no, I am to think of the rescue and the rescuer, and I am to do it now. And already something has happened to your mindset, hasn't it? Already you are not consumed anymore by the other aspects of your suffering. You have been released to rejoice and say, Oh my, I've been rescued. And what a rescuer. And at the center of that great rescue was the suffering of the cross. And I've been drawn into the fellowship and bond of God's suffering heart through what I'm going through. And now it must embrace the future. So the apostle says, I suffer now in the light of the past for the sake of his body. That's how significant your suffering is. I do it as a servant to present the word of God in its fullness. And the word of God never soft soaps the issue of suffering. It confronts it head on. It tackles it. It deals with it. And the purpose of all my suffering is this. so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. So yes, I've got a purpose in life. And the presenting of people perfect is not something that I yak about. It's something they see in me. Because I'm living in the now, and I'm casting my future in the light of that. To this end, then, I labor To this end, I struggle with all his energy because my energy runs out pretty quickly, especially when I'm suffering. But now his energy, which so powerfully works in me, comes to pass in me. Now, how does this this actually work itself out? Well, John Wesley was an Episcopalian minister who very early in our American history, way back in about 1730 or so, came to the USA to do missionary work among the Native Americans. On one trip, a violent storm overtook their little vessel, probably no bigger than the bulldog cafeteria. And it was the worst storm that even the captain and sailors had seen, and they were terrified. Hardened, seasoned sailors were crying out in terror. The, they were convinced the ship could not survive. And Wesley himself panicked with the crew and the rest of the passengers, and there were scenes of, of derangement. But on board was also a group of Moravians, 
Christians called Moravians. My own great-grandparents were Moravian Christians who went to Africa. And they were unperturbed. And they quietly prayed around the mast. Then they moved among the passengers, calming them and speaking to them in ways that brought serenity. And they sought to do good. And the testimony reached John Wesley, who was a Christian in name only, even though he came to do missionary work. And it awakened him to something that was missing in his own life. And it began his journey, which led to his genuine conversion. And he came back as an evangelist. And part of American history is the Great Awakening, which happened under John Wesley and George Whitfield. And so says the apostle, I labor to show the energy and present people perfect in Christ. And he says, my purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart. It's what the Moravians were doing there in the midst of that suffering. And united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding. And that is that God is ministering to you in a special way in your suffering. In order that they may know the mystery of Christ, namely of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and of knowledge. And all of this through the sublime moment of now. So in this world, we are constantly on the threshold of tomorrow. And maybe today, as you are on the threshold of the rest of your life, whereas you've been perfectly healthy, you are now suddenly thinking ill health. Maybe you've been secure in your job and everything and the economy and everything that's going on, your happy prospects are now overwhelmed by miserable circumstances. And your security has turned into insecurity. And you add hope for your relationships, maybe with children or a neighbor or I don't know where, and now they all seem shredded beyond repair. All of those things in the now are set in the context of working beside the great rescuer and in the work of the great rescue. So neither this is significant. If you were looking to that for your happiness, you've discovered now that it can't provide it, so it's insignificant because your life can change in a heartbeat. Nor is this that significant because you are living in the now. God said, a very puzzling statement, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. And the very name that God gave to Moses is, I am present, is what I am. And so all of eternity comes down to this moment, this worship service. And when you leave to the lunch you're eating, and what are you doing this afternoon, the whole of eternity comes down to that point, and you are to enjoy that moment. And only the now matters. Now you will notice this, that any time you jump from the now zone, 
Any time you move from now, that is remembering the great rescue and the great rescuer and that you are part of that, any time you switch the focus from the rescue rescuer and you, you focus rather on the prison bars, your rejoicing will desert you. There's no doubt it will desert you and your life will lose its significance. The now is the only way to live. So we say now, uh, what was that again? <laughs> oh, yes. You see, this got this breathtaking sweep of the entire universe. God of the universe coming down into your moment of now. And, oh, yes, there's a rescue. Oh, yes, my suffering is significant. Now I too can say with the Apostle Paul, I rejoice in my suffering. And all of that is made visible because under the shadow of the cross lies the table of communion. And God is not academic about this. He invites us to the table and he says, Here, here is a symbol of deep significance. We will break the bread and you must think of the great rescue. We will drink of a cup and we will think of the great rescuer who shed his blood and as we eat and drink those will become part and parcel of who we are and we will experience in the now the full flood of God's love and God's significance and it all comes down to a table where God is the host and he says sit down Let's have some friendship. Let us pray together. Thank you, great God, for showing us that you are present in the now. Thank you that at this table you are present as nowhere else. That at this table we see not just significant symbols, but we actually eat and partake of them. And they tell us that we who are sinners, who confess our sins freely to you, including the sin of mistrust and of leaving the now zone, we come, Lord, confessing and yet rejoicing that our great rescuer enacted the great rescue in actuality. And now as we partake, flood our consciousness with your presence, with this moment being filled with all of eternity. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.